The Hamlet Podcast, episode 37. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanretty. As if witches and floating daggers and screaming owls were not enough, the play is about to take yet another turn towards the supernatural. Macbeth has just dismissed the murderer, more than a little disappointed that Fleance got away. Lady Macbeth has noticed his absence from the dinner table, and she calls out to him to rejoin the merriment. She even completes his line of verse. Macbeth has just said, We'll hear ourselves again. My royal lord. You do not give the cheer. The feast is sold that is not often vouched. While tis a making, tis given with welcome. To feed were best at home. From thence the sauce to meet is ceremony. Meeting were bare without it. This is another instance of Lady Macbeth's expertise at maintaining the mask, the veneer, the look of that innocent flower she mentioned earlier. Since she's back to speaking in this complicated formal language again, it feels like she's definitely addressing the whole room as well as Macbeth. If she was speaking to him alone, as she'll do in a little while, she'd probably be rather more direct. She's calling to him to stop neglecting his guests and raise another toast. My royal lord, she says, you do not give the cheer. It seems that a feast without constant toasting was considered less fun. This level of toast-making reminds me of Claudius and his big party during Act One of Hamlet. Lady M says that the feast is sold that is not vouched. Without toasts and cheers, a feast like this will feel like a transaction, or an obligation. While the feast is happening, a making, their guests should be toasted and made feel welcome. Otherwise, they would be better off eating at home. When one is away from home, what makes a meal enjoyable is this toast-making. From thence, away from home, the sauce to meat is ceremony. There's a play on words here. She's talking about a meeting, of course, but also the meat that's on their dinner table. Without good cheer, meetings like this would be nakedly dull. Meeting were bare without it. She's somewhat covering for Macbeth, who has so curiously, even rudely, been huddled in the corner with whoever he was talking to. She's brought him back into the room now, and he acknowledges her for it. His answer is, Sweet remembrancer, now good digestion weight on appetite and health on both. It's a nice enough toast. He thanks her for the reminder, sweet remembrancer, and then wishes that the diners will eat well and digest everything happily and healthily. It's not an enormously exciting toast, but it's an entirely acceptable one. Now Lennox encourages Macbeth to take his seat and join the feast. He says, May it please your highness sit. Many texts of the play will here include a stage direction that the ghost of Banquo now enters and sits in Macbeth's place at the table. For once this feels more like a direction for stagecraft and stage timing rather than for excitement on the page. Macbeth isn't going to see the ghost for a little bit, and nobody else acknowledges this rather shocking entry. So with this early entrance, we are perhaps being primed to understand that only Macbeth can or will see him. Macbeth sees nothing for the moment, 
and continues to address the company. He says, Here had we now our country's honour roofed, with a graced person of our Banquo present, who may I rather challenge for unkindness than pity for mischance. We in the audience know full well that this is an extravagant lie. Macbeth has just confirmed Banquo's murderer with the man who did it, and now he's telling this party of assembled Scottish excellence that all the very best people in Scotland, our country's honour, would be all here under this roof if only Banquo was here too. Graced, gracious, lovely Banquo. And now he pushes it even further. He makes jokes. He makes great show of hoping that he will have to reprimand Banquo for his unkindness at not showing up to this feast, rather than pity him for some mischance or accident. It's so brazen of Macbeth to turn around like this, but it's all the more shocking if we're seeing Banquo's ghost take a seat at the table while he does it. Ross responds, confirming that it is noteworthy that Banquo hasn't shown up. His absence, sir, lays blame upon his promise. Please, your highness, to grace us with your royal company. He's saying that Banquo had certainly promised to be there, so now his absence makes it a promise broken. And then Ross asks Macbeth to sit and join the company in what should be his place at the table. Macbeth answers, the table's full. Banquo's ghost is sitting where Macbeth should sit. This is a great physical manifestation of Macbeth's fears. Banquo is quite literally taking his place. But why is nobody else responding to this? Lennox now answers and says, Here is a place reserved, sir. So, if Lennox is pointing to what he thinks is an empty chair, the ghost is visible only to Macbeth. And, of course, to us. Macbeth has to ask Lennox, Where? Where would this reserved place be? Like Macbeth, we are seeing Banquo in a seat, and therefore there's no available place reserved for Macbeth. Totally unfazed, Lennox continues to point to a non-empty space, and he says, Here, my good lord. What is that moves, your highness? It's nothing serious. He's obviously just seeing this space as empty. There's no ghost in the way, and wonders what's bugging Macbeth. Quite rightly, Macbeth starts to wonder what's going on, and who has set this up. He asks, which of you have done this? Not that they'd confess, of course, but nobody in this room has done anything. The only guilty person is Macbeth himself. Depending on the state of Banquo, and how gory the costume department chooses to make him, Macbeth asking, which of you have done this, has an extra resonance. Who here murdered this man? But nobody is seeing anything. The lords in general ask, What, my good lord? They're seeing nothing. It's only Macbeth. But Banquo's ghost can respond here too. He can point back at Macbeth, mocking him. He knows by now that it's Macbeth that arranged his murder. So of course he can answer, Which of you hath done this? Banquo says, You did. Macbeth is appalled and cries, Thou canst not say I did it. Never shake thy gory locks at me. Remember that Banquo's had twenty trenchard gashes to his head and has had his throat cut. Presumably there's been quite an amount of blood spilled, which means that this ghost might be sitting there 
pretty bloody and horrifying. So these gory locks that Macbeth mentions are his bloody hair. He can mock Macbeth all he wants now, since nobody else can see. The assembled company can obviously see that Macbeth is going through something here. He's shouting at something that isn't there. Ross is the first to respond and try to stage-manage this. He says, Gentlemen, rise. His Highness is not well. Party would appear to be over, definitely. But Lady Macbeth intervenes. This is a big event in their campaign to consolidate their rule, so she won't give up this easily. She says, Sit, worthy friends. My lord is often thus, and hath been from his youth. Pray you, keep seat. The fit is momentary. Upon a thought he will again be well. If much you note him, you shall offend him and extend his passion. Feed and regard him not. Are you a man? Lady Macbeth vamps here, as she encourages the nobles to stay where they are, spinning a story of some condition that Macbeth has had since childhood. This fit, or outburst, is momentary, she says. Quick as a thought, he will be well again. Cleverly, she advises that if they pay much attention to Macbeth while he's like this, they will offend him and aggravate the situation. They could even extend his passion, his outburst. So she tells them to keep their seats, eat their dinner, and not look at him. But is it enough? Who knows? Macbeth is shouting at an empty seat. But now Lady Macbeth has made her way to him, and since she's told everyone else to keep their eyes averted, there's a little room for her to speak directly to her husband. She goes back to a tried and tested territory, asking, Are you a man? She knows how to get under his skin, and she has to do it quickly now. The others might just believe this story of the fit and whatever else, but there can be no room for any more crazy behaviour. Macbeth responds to this, are you a man, with, I, and a bold one, that dare look on that which might appall the devil. Yes, he's saying, I am a man, and I'm a brave one, even to look at something that terrible something that could appall or horrify the devil himself. So we can intuit that Banquo must look pretty horrifying. Of course, he's also someone who has apparently come back from the dead, which is scary in its own way. But the entire company on stage has to make this illusion work, that absolutely nobody else can see Banquo. Lady Macbeth has to lead this charge, as she says, Oh, proper stuff. This is the very painting of your fear. This is the air-drawn dagger which you said led you to Duncan. Oh, these flaws and starts, impostors to true fear, would well become a woman's story at a winter's fire, authorised by her grandam. Shame itself. Why do you make such faces? When all's done, you look but on a stool. This is quite an amazing little lecture she's giving him. We in the audience can see this ghost, but in our hearts, perhaps, we also know that such sights are very unlikely. So we can believe everything she's saying and believe our eyes at the same time. Ghosts, devils and witches and such frights were far more credited in Shakespeare's time than they are now. Not that people were more credulous or that the film Between the Worlds was any thicker or thinner, but there was a lot more darkness then. And as such, there was more room for fears of all these things that go bump in the night. 
Lady Macbeth isn't even suspecting this ghostly presence. She's more worried that Macbeth's imagination is running away with him again. Proper stuff indeed, she says. This is another painting, a creation. This is a manifestation of Macbeth's fear. The same fear that made him see that air-drawn dagger before the first murder, the one he said led him to Duncan. We never hear him tell her about that, but it's somehow nice to know that he did. She's insisting that these flaws and starts are barely worthy of a woman's folk tale told around a fire, a tale she probably heard, authorised, from her grandmother. This isn't real fear. This is just make-believe, almost. Shame on him for being so shakeable. She's really going for him now, trying to help him snap out of it, because he really needs to with all these people looking at him, or trying not to. Why are you making such faces, she's asking. At the end of the day, you're just looking at a stool. But of course, there's another actor sitting on that stool, probably dripping with stage blood and leering accusingly at Macbeth. Sir Ian McKellen has spoken quite eloquently about how this scene should be staged. He maintains that the ghost absolutely has to be invisible. Macbeth is the only one seeing things. So is everyone else mad? Why can't they see what's there? Why are we seeing it if nobody else does? He makes a convincing point, and certainly he played the scene in his production with Judy Dench in a way that certainly worked. There was no ghost visible. It was all in his head. But in researching this episode, I found reference to this scene in a play called The Night of the Burning Pestle by Francis Beaumont. It's a comedy, and doesn't have much else to do with Macbeth. But listen to this, when one character threatens to haunt another for the wrongs he's done. And never shalt thou sit or be alone in any place, but I will visit thee with ghastly looks, and put into thy mind the great offences which thou didst to me. When thou art at thy table with thy friends, merry in heart, and filled with swelling wine... I'll come in midst of all thy pride and mirth, invisible to all men but thyself, and whisper such a sad tale in thine ear shall make thee let the cup fall from thy hand and stand as mute and pale as death itself. The banquet scene must have been a terrific moment in Shakespeare's version for it to have made its way into a whole other comedy in a reference like this, Perhaps Macbeth also dropped his cup, or perhaps he will in the next episode. There's even more drama to come, of course, but we're going to leave it there for this week and see what's about to happen in the next one. I hope you're enjoying your own dinners without any hideous or uninvited guests. If you're in Ireland and would like a radically different look at Lady Macbeth and her letter scene, my production of Masterclass, a play in which Maria Callas teaches a young performer how to play Lady Macbeth, will be playing at Smock Alley until the end of May. I appreciate that this is a live plug for my show, and so if you reach this episode after May of 2023, I am sorry, but I wouldn't want you saying that I never told you either. We'd love to see you there. You can get tickets at smockalley.com. And in the meantime, thank you, as always, for your company. I really appreciate all of you listeners who are on this journey through Macbeth with me, and I'll speak to you next time. <laughs>